Hello, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese, and you're listening to 5105. And remember, sweep the leg. Five Talks. Five Talks. More than just music. Hey, everybody. This is John Carlo Alino reporting for Vibe 105 with a Sports Five Talk segment where we're going to be talking Cobra Kai today. One of the hottest shows on Netflix going on right now. It's top in the world in English TV shows. To help me out, I'm happy to be joined by my guest. He's making his return here to the Vibe 105 airwaves. You've seen him play Sensei John Kreese. He's Martin Cove. How you doing, Martin? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing? Doing great. And Martin, before we came on here, I was doing some research on Netflix and seeing some of their most viewed shows. And up there was Cobra Kai season four, right where it belongs at number one. When you hear the reaction from fans online and social media, what was your reaction to that? Well, I knew that the show, you know, season four was big and it was contributed to the writers who write very well. And this, especially this season, wrote a lot of a lot of colors for the characters, you know, and I want, I signed on for this character to have a little more vulnerability and he's somewhat misunderstood. He's not a villain. And uh, you can tell by some of the flashbacks in season three and then a lot more in season four. And he's smart enough to hook into Terry Silver and say, you know, I need some help. And he saved this guy's life and he's paid back difficultly, let's just say, you know, by the end of the show and he's deceived. And there's a certain amount of vulnerability in that. There's a certain amount of simpatico in that from the audience when they see what happens to him. And I do get my revenge, but we can't throw any spoilers in there. But the interesting thing about it is the writing. The writing is is always solid. It's always different. And I think in any show, when I did Cagney and Lacey, the writing was really good. We canceled twice, and yet we stayed on for six years because the writing was terrific and people cared about the characters. And that's, in essence, what I think every show, whether you're number one in the world or number 10, you've got to care about the people. You're inviting them into your living room every week to entertain you, you know, and it's different than the movies. The movies have that big mystique and that big, you know, landscape. I'm a big Western fan. So I just, whenever I see a movie, just the environment turns me on. If you see something in Monument Valley, it doesn't even matter what they're saying. I just love, I feel at home seeing the plateaus and the desert, you know, and I'm from New York, but I have a metaphysical connection to the West because I was born on the day the Alamo fell. So March 6th is my birthday. And I just have always had a, a metaphysical connection to Texas. And, you know, that's the frontier. And was, so I just think that, you know, these writers put it together as close as they can to a good Western. They really, you know, choreograph these characters richly, Billy and Ralph and myself and the Cobra Kai kids. So there's a little bit of something for everyone, I believe, in that show. It's like the old Ed Sullivan show, where everybody can get around the TV on a Sunday night and get something from the show. Everybody can get around the TV and watch Cobra Kai and come away with something that's exciting. Yeah. And I like how you brought up there about your character being misunderstood because last year when you joined us and you had that quote that I put it online, I wanted to see how people reacted to it, if they felt the same. And it was a little 50-50. Some people considered you as a villain. And then you have the other 50% that, you know, understands that you're misunderstood. You're just teaching the right way. So when you see this season of Cobra Kai and just uh, like you said there about being deceived there by Silver, do you think people are going to come around now and see, you know what, maybe Martin Cove's uh, Sensei John Kreese isn't such a bad guy. Well, as I told you, that website, Cobra Kid, CobraKid.com, he does an entire video 
which everybody should listen and watch. It's like a season five video that he's so perceptive and everything. And I looked at it just last night and it was very flattering because he's so poignant. And this is a teenager. This is it's like a young, greedy filmmaker who wants to capture all the moments of the best TV show in town and then, then formulate what the future is going to be. You know, very creative, very creative. And yes, the answer to that question is I think the audience will get a sense that he has been um, slighted and how he comes back and takes his revenge is something we can't really talk about, but it's all appropriate. You know, it's all written well, season five, and it's in the can. And what goes on from there is always a surprise. But these writers do write lots of texture. And um, it's something I insisted on when I joined. I didn't want to play one dimensional character as I did in the movie. And the fact that Terry Silver is in existence is because I could not do Karate Kid 3 because I got a TV show called Hard Time on Planet Earth. So they had to do a major rewrite. And my character was supposed to create the um, sting operation on Ralph and Mike Barnes. There wasn't any Terry Silver. It was John Kreese who was doing all of that activity. And then I got a series and I, I couldn't get out of the series. So I could only be on the periphery of the movie. And, you know, they set that up. They created a character, Terry Silver, sends me on vacation to Tahiti. And then the rest, I come back. But it was heartbreaking. It was a bittersweet experience. And I felt I left, I let down John Avelson, Jerry Weintraub. But my agent always said, I'll get you out of the series. Don't worry. And he couldn't. Oh. It was a big CBS show. Couldn't do it. So, so that movie then, Karate Kid Part 3, like, do you think all things then happen for a reason because Terry Silver's in that, becomes this over-the-top villain, and now years later, we're seeing this great dynamic. Do you think at the end of it, although at the time, maybe you would have loved to have that character be more of a focal point in the third film, do you think it was all for a good reason now when you look back? Well, they needed, you know, how many times can John Kreese just pontificate in front of the dojo? We've got to get Miyagi-Do. You know, we've got to get Eagle Fang. They're combining against us. And we have to find a way because mercy is for the weak. How many times can you do that? You know, you do it season two, season three, part of season four. And then you have to you have to diversify the writing. And that's the purpose they did it. They needed to bring in another element. And he is pure evil. He's what you thought I was. And, he, you know, I saved his life and he doesn't pay me back very well. And that's where the adventure starts, you know. And uh, like I said, season five is in the can, but it's rich, too. And uh, it'll air next this year sometime. But I guess it was necessary. It was necessary in the structure, the literal structure of writing, of character development, and to have this monster come in and have me react to it where I was the monster. So it's like Billy and Ralph probably have to come to the monster for some help to combat another monster who's bigger, you know? But I mean, that's in theory. That's in theory. So it is necessary. In the writing, it is necessary, I believe. I did at the beginning, but I do now. And this whole relationship, like I'm sure when season three ended, the phone call happens. A lot of people are probably saying when that trailer comes out, it's just going to open up. You know, Terry Silver right away comes to the dojo, but that wasn't the case. It kind of like flipped the script a little bit. It's like your character, John Kreese, has to go convince him to join you. Do you think that was an interesting element they added in there? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, we shot that. Let's see. We shot that in Jacksonville at a house 
on the beach to represent Malibu. And yeah, he had become a pansy. He'd just become a laid back guy. And, you know, when I called him and he never called me back and all, I looked up where he lived. It was easy and uh, went to see him. And it adds a lot of humor because, you know, I just, you know, at the end of those scenes, I would say, well, you know, tell your girlfriend thanks for the tofu. And we're entertaining a guy who mispronounces karate. And then she mispronounces the group Cobra Kai. She says something else. And it all like is so humorous to me. But I keep it inside, figuring, what has he succumbed to? What has this guy that whose life I saved in the last moments, what has he become? What has happened to him? The guy that said Cobra Kai never dies and put me on the airplane. What's going on? And that's why I knew he'd come to the dojo. Even though he said no, I knew that he was restless for the John Cree style of life. And how was that dynamic? Because like the third film, it's not like when you, Ralph and Billy, you worked there for the other two films. So already that story's built in. Thomas Ian Griffith hasn't really been with that character in a while. So how was it just bringing him back into the role and interacting with him in scenes again? Well, he had not acted in a while. He was writing, he and his wife or a writing team. So he hadn't acted in a while. So I think at the beginning, it took a while, but he jumped right in there. We used to have a lot of fun in Karate Kid 3 because we called ourselves the Terminators. And, you know, it was the third sequel. We were getting paid a lot of money. and It was a loose set, and they were shooting Lethal Weapon 2 next door. And, you know, we were having a great time. It was over at the Columbia Ranch near uh, Burbank. And, we, you know, we reflected a lot on that because I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I remember going to his wedding, and he's had some good successes with the writing. So, you know. It took out just a couple of episodes, but it, it, it was easy. It was easy because it was written clearly. We didn't have to didn't have to play with the words. So many projects you do, you have to play with the words. You can't change much. It's like trying to change. I did Streetcar Named Desire before I came to Hollywood, and I got really great reviews. And it was what put me over the top to say I want to try and go to. You know, I was doing a lot of theater in New York, and I want to try and see what I can do in Los Angeles. So it was the hump that you get over. So, so many times you, you can't, and I remember getting this, getting Street Cut and Desire with so many lines, but you can't change anything because it's Tennessee Williams. You're not going to change anything. Everything is pertinent to the moment. So bottom line is you can't, you don't change much on their writing. Their writing is clean and they oversee all the other writers that write. And then when you bring up, <laughs> you bring up who the hell wrote this? I can't memorize it, you know, and all they'll say is, well, from this writer from Canada, happened to be a Canada guy. And he says that over the PA comes a real brilliant writer from Canada. Now, Marty, just do it the way it's written, you know? And so you do. And it worked out fine because I saw the scene. It was season four. It was a scene that Billy and I had a rough time with. And we tried to rewrite, and rewrite. And we ended up saying the same words as they created. So one's lucky that we're with very perceptive writers that see the long term of each character's development. Yeah. And I like how you brought up there, like the long term of each character's development. And we even saw like a moment there where it's Johnny and Terry and it's your character, Crease, who, you know, steps in between. There's still that affection he has for Johnny as a student, even though you tried to kill him in the third season, just defending yourself. But uh, what do you think that relationship is like there where he still cares enough where he's going to go against his war buddy because he cares so much about Johnny Lawrence? Well, there's two elements there. He cares about Cobra Kai the most. That's the highest priority for him. That's why I took the dojo in season three. 
because Johnny Lawrence got soft. And he is my second priority, my love for him. He's like my son. But if you violate Cobra Kai, then you have to suffer. And the second priority being Johnny Lawrence, I think my character will always have an affection for him, despite how he acts it out. You know, he'll always deep down inside have an affection. It's like your first girlfriend. If you saw your first girlfriend, you're not going to be blasé with her, you know, even though you're married and you got four kids or whatever. So if there will always be a place in John Creese's heart for Johnny Lawrence. And it's just he will weave in the importance of Cobra Kai into technically the destruction of Miyagi-Do and Eagle Fang. He will weave in Cobra Kai's success, but he ultimately will maintain a protection and a love affair with Johnny Lawrence. Ralph, that's another story. Daniel LaRusso, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's a kind of like when you take your Band-Aid off your cut and then all of a sudden... You figure it's okay for a while, and then you, you spill a little soy sauce salt on there by accident while you're eating sushi, and it burns like hell. So you got problems. It's got to heal differently, or you got to apply another Band-Aid. So it's always interesting, Ralph and I. You know, we have fun because we don't get a chance to do too many scenes together, but they're always, they're always very subtle. And Crease is always vindictive, but subtly. And Ralph is always protective and has always envisioned me as a madman. So... It's fun to play. And looking at all the other characters, I'm sure longevity wise, there's got to be a character that takes over down the line. Like if you look at some of the characters on the show in the future, who would you say would embody the Cobra Kai dojo and would eventually take over from John Kreese? Interesting. Well, that's assuming they'll give me a spinoff. You know, I think I could handle it 20 years ago, but now it would be fun. It would be a lot of fun if it was orchestrated well. So I would have to leave the dojo you know, Tanner does a very good job yeah. in taking over because he's a very good, he's the best fighter in the room. So usually you want the best fighter to be the professor, you know, the, the sensei. But Hawk has got the spirit. Hawk has got the spirit. And in this video that I told you that young fellow did, he often talks about one thing I told Hawk. And I said, I think it was season three, he was very dejected. And I said to him, just remember, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. And with that reverberating in Hawk's head, it's either he or Tanner, you know, it's either, you know, it's either Robbie or Hawk. And um, I think they both do a great job because one could play off the other. I don't think Terry Silver and John Kreese, in my heart today, knowing what I know, could ever run that dojo properly. Because one is purely, as you see in, in the end of season four, I tell Tori, go do what you think you can do best. And I care about it. You know, he doesn't give a shit. He's just, <laughs> go out there and just break the rules again, but win. It's not John Kreese. You know, it's not honor. It's not good karate. It doesn't have the moral fiber that, I mean, there's no question about it that I believe in nothing but first place is the only place, but done with some taste and class and talent. For sure there. Uh, for those just showing us here on Vibe 105, we're being joined by Martin Cove of Cobra Kai. And uh, Martin, just to transition a little bit, you know, Cobra Kai has been one of the roles that you've been known for, but you've also been, you know, excited about Western films and just rejuvenating that franchise, that whole genre. Where do you think that genre maybe started to fizzle out a little bit and not become as popular as it was back in the day? Well, it's getting more popular now with 1883. He does a brilliant job, you know, the creator, the creator of, two, of uh, Yellowstone, the same fellow. And he is just wonderful, wonderful writer. And, um, you know, he was a rodeo cowboy, so he knows the West. And 1883 is brilliant. 
Just brilliant. And I think that um, you have several Westerns on Netflix, um, Power of the Dog. She just got a, a Golden Globe. And it's the same director, Jane Campion, who did The Piano with Holly Hunter years ago. And she's out of uh, New Zealand. But in short, the Western genre from 1920 to 1967, one of every three movies coming out of this town, oh, I don't live there anymore, that town out of Hollywood was a Western. That means 33% of the movies produced were of the genre. And so it's overexposed. Every story you can think of has been done. The first movie that ever made was shot in 1903, The Great Train Robbery by Thomas Edison with his new camera. And it was all about the West. And the way to make the Western work now is, I believe, the story and the character developments have to be so, be so rich because kids don't know from the Western. The younger generation is not like me, where there were 35 Westerns on network prime time in the 60s. 35 Westerns on primetime TV in the 60s. So they don't know that. And you have to really create a Cobra Kai with that music. You know, Zach and, and um, Leo do brilliant work. I was listening to their Cobra Kai album. And it was sensational. You could throw that right into, throw it right into a Western in a minute. And that's what you need. You need that music. You need, you need great character development. You need strong simpatico. And you need characters that these kids are going to care about. Because they care about the Avengers. They care about any one of these characters in Star Wars. If you didn't care about the characters, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to advocate the movie. Yeah. You know, so it's like anything else. You, you know, I'm looking for certain material to do with my son. And um, it's got to have the right twists with the fresh. Must be fresh. Can't be part of that syndrome from 1920 to 1967. Westerns that fail, they either don't have enough money and they don't have enough simpatico for the characters. Yeah. So it can come back like sci-fi. They told, they told George Lucas sci-fi was dead. In 1977, you know, and remember, he got they told him at Fox that it was so dead that they gave this guy all the marketing rights as part of his deal because they didn't think anything would become of Star Wars. So whoever says that the Western is dead is wrong. It just needs to be reapproached with new twists. And what made you fall in love with that genre? Because like, it's interesting, like there's a movie, like some people, they see an action movie and they maybe say Terminator, Rambo uh, franchise you're a part of. For the Western, what was it? Like, was it an actor? Was it a movie that made you fall in love with it? God, it's a good question. When I was a little boy, I was five years old growing up in Brooklyn. My mother used to tell the story that in those days, those really cheap movies they were called horse operas, and they were a lot of galloping of horses across the screen. Then it would cut to the good guy galloping across the screen. You know, Bob Steele, Ken Maynard, all those movies that came out in the 30s were now on television. And they were little inexpensive movies shot, you know, four days in Simi Valley in California. And those early Roy Rogers, early John Wayne Republic films. And I used to run around the back of the TV and wonder where those horses went. You know, they galloped across the screen and then I'd run around and my mother would always tell that story. And that was the first time I remember Westerns galloping horses and all. And then I saw a couple of movies like Red River with John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. And Montgomery Clift was a Broadway actor that Howard Hawks found. And six months later, put him in, in with John Wayne in Red River, a terrific picture. The guy hadn't drawn a gun. He'd never played a Western. He never was on a horse. 
but he did a brilliant job in the movie, you know? So Red River stuck with me. And then I loved, I was just on the cover of uh, Cowboys and Indians. And just that was so exciting for me. And I got to talk about my favorite Westerns, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, The Wild Bunch is my favorite. And of course, Red River and Butch Cassidy and Tombstone. There's so many, you know, and I think it's a genre that can return. But it just needs a lot of care. And just the upbringing, I think, since I was five and always I was born on the day the Alamo fell. So I think there's a metaphysical connection to Texas. And I think that's a source of the frontier, you know. But Taylor Sheridan, with his writing with Yellowstone and, and I did Wyatt Earp with Costner and, I, you know, Kevin is incredible. I think every movie he makes, whether it's Postman or something else, he brings it in as a Western. He puts it out there as a Western, you know, and that's what Taylor Sheridan's done. You know, I think Yellowstone's brilliant and 1883 is as good. And uh, he's the guy that's going to, you know, help bring back the genre, I think. And it's interesting, too, because for a lot of genres, there's always that ensemble piece where they get everybody together, maybe a lot of heroes that everyone loved. Uh, we see it with Avengers and even Expendables, too, with all the action heroes. If you were to make a Western ensemble and get all your favorites together, who would be your ensemble Western film? It's interesting, you know, because we do lack the Kirk Douglases and the Burt Lancaster and the Brian Keiths, you know, the Steve McQueens. We miss all those guys. Everybody now is pretty and fast draw and they all can do their work. But we miss the character actors, you know, the guys that can play heavies or good guys at the drop of a hat. So it's a very good question. Again, who would I cast? I certainly enjoy Christian Bale. When I saw Hostels, everything, it was the most internalized acting I'd ever seen for a Western. So internalized. I would definitely have Christian Bale, Brad Pitt. Is great when he does that character. What was that? The tank movie Fury, and he, he's just so good. You know, he's very good. And he, he he's very good. And and DiCaprio in a second. I mean, these guys they're movie stars, but you know they underplay well. And um, that's what Burt Lancaster did in the Gunfight OK Corral with Kirk Douglas. He underplayed wider. He didn't do the champion. You know, he didn't do the rainmaker. You know, he did did it with subtlety because those characters in life are big as life. And, um, you know, Kirk Douglas even underplayed it a bit, but he had to play it bigger than Bert because he was sick and he was, you know, suffering. But yeah, I, I, I would say those, and I, you know, I mean, as an ensemble, you know, you get a wish list, bring in <laughs> Kevin, you bring in Costner, you bring in all the, all these guys, you'd have, you'd have the trouble of trying to make sure every single role is equal to the other because yeah. they're used to the biggest parts, you know, but um, that's, that's who I'd start. If I had a Magnificent Seven, I liked the Magnificent Seven, the, the reboot. It was, you know, interesting, but it did not have the soul of what Steve McQueen and Yul Brynner had together and Charlie Bronson. It didn't, you know, it didn't have enough of that, but it was a terrific picture, you know, terrific picture. I enjoyed it very much. I had to see it a couple of times to lock in. Denzel does a good job because he underplays. You know, he's really good. Really good. I'd love to have Denzel as that part of that, you know, that ensemble. Before we wrap up, uh, how can our listeners follow you on social media? And you have a new podcast coming out. Uh, so floor is yours to promote that. 
Yeah, the, the podcast called Cobra Coves, and it's very exciting. It's on podcast one, and it's with my son and my daughter. And it's very exciting because we analyze all the episodes of Cobra Kai. And she's a life coach, and you know she's very well healed in mental health. And my son is acting, you know, just got the part of Wyatt Earp, a picture that's a prequel to Tombstone, but he's an actor who has also been on Cobra Kai. And so, and myself, and it's very exciting. Cobra Coves in a couple of weeks on podcast one. And uh, you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. That's great. Uh, well, Martin, I appreciate you being generous with your time here. And it was great talking to you about Cobra Kai again. And I wish you all the best with this new venture on your podcast and season five of Cobra Kai. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. And now back to your vibe. Vibe 105.